strong. Ash. Bone. And sickle. Bleeding saints and forest witches. The past unburied. The books unsealed. The old celebration returning. I'm Al Reidenauer, and you're listening to Bone and Sickle, an obsessively devoted and mostly serious exploration of horror and folklore and where those topics intersect in strange tales, uh, forgotten bits of history, in literature, music, art, and film, all the tangled ancient roots and the strange modern flowerings. I started this podcast to share various interests similar to those discussed in my book, The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas, as well as topics I'm exploring for an upcoming book along similar themes. We'll take a twisting roundabout path through all these topics and follow those tangled roots, probably get lost together, stumble over some sound effects, a snippet of music, but keep listening. We'll get there and we'll hear it getting closer and closer, the old celebration returning. Episode 1. Welcome. Welcome to my study. Ah, the scholarly clutter, the ancient tomes with their musty scent. Smells like learning, doesn't it? Please, make yourself comfortable. Pour yourself some brandy. generous. Oh, him? Don't mind Wilkinson. He's just the butler. He'll be reading some of the passages from the books I'll be quoting. He's got such a fine reading voice. Thank you, sir. Shall I refill the brandy, sir? I I think we're fine. Uh, Notes all in order? Certainly. I'll just uh, point at you as your cue. It will be seamless. I'm sure. And, uh, And my microphone, I thought I might Move it closer to that chair. But that mic stand doesn't go that low for sitting. And you don't get a full sound sitting with your body all folded over. Your lungs get compressed. The only reason I can sit is by setting the table mic here really high. See? I'm So I'm straight and my, my lungs are all nice and full. I see, sir. You don't get that sitting. Sometimes when you... Sit and talk at the same time. I can't even understand you. I do apologize. Oh, it's fine. When you stand, you get really good tones. Really rich. Thank you, sir. Anyway, uh, let's get going. So, episode one, Walpurgisnacht, or May Eve. Much like that great huckster Anton Zandor LaVey chose this date in 1966 to launch his Church of Satan, I've chosen the same to inaugurate Bone and Sickle. 
April 30th, well, why so evil? The following day is all May flowers and May poles and sunny renewal. It's conveniently for me, since I've researched such things with my Krampus preoccupation, the answer lies in German folklore, or at least partly. A more direct influence on our English-speaking culture could be found at the Borgo Pass in Transylvania, Hollywood's Transylvania, or at a nearby inn. It's there a visitor to Dracula's castle tries to engage a coach to take him to the pass, but... Uh, the driver, he is afraid. Walpurgis night. <laughs> Good fellow he is. He wants me to ask if you can wait and go on after sunrise. So, that's from the 1931 film Dracula, popular film. You may have heard of it. Now, no one's sure why, but it wasn't the same in Bram Stoker's book. The book, as you may recall, is framed as a series of journal entries and letters. It's kind of an effort to add a bit of extra realism to this wild fantasy in the same way that we use found footage today in horror movies. Anyway, because it's done in journal entries, we know the exact date our character is supposed to meet Dracula at the Borgo Pass, and it's May 5th, not April 30th. So it's not Valpurgisnacht. It's still an auspicious date, and Stoker has the character uh, fret about it, saying, Do you know what day it is? asks the landlady at Beatrice. It is the eve of St. George's Day. Tonight, when the clock strikes midnight, all evil things in the world will have full sway. Much of the same folklore applies to both occasions. I'll get into Valpurgisnacht folklore and why it and St. George's Eve might have been conflated, but first a bit more on St. George's Eve customs. Here's a bit on St. George's Day from The Vampire in Europe, written in 1929 by Montague Summers. If you don't know Montague Summers, you want to. Summers was as eccentric as he was erudite. He was a scholar of 17th century drama and Catholic history, but also of the occult, demonology, witchcraft, and vampires. He was an ordained Catholic clergyman, but also an acquaintance, though not a friend, of Aleister Crowley. He treated the occult and stuff like witchcraft as authentic, genuinely terrifying realities. And remember, this was in the 1920s. And his appearance and manner of dress also seemed to come from another time. He was known for wearing a dramatic black cloak, old-fashioned buckle shoes, and at times carrying a silver-topped cane showing Zeus ravishing Leda in the form of a swan. And when he died, his epitaph inscribed on his tombstone was... Tell me strange things. So, a perfectly wonderful oddball. But, back to St. George's Day. Summers writes, At the same time upon the eve of the saint, the power of vampires, witches, and every evil thing is at its height. Among the Ruthenians of Bukovina and Galicia, the farmer's wife gathers great branches of thorn to lay on the threshold of her house, and every door is painted with a cross in tar to protect it from the witches. The South Slavs favor bundles of thistles which are placed on the fence, the windows, and the doors to prevent the entry of any evil thing. 
Until quite recent years in Swabia, all the church bells used to be kept ringing a merry chime from nightfall until dawn on the day of the festival. For in those parts it was believed that no vampire and no witch can come within the sound of a church bell. As it turns out, Stoker did quite a lot of folkloric research to prepare for his novel. One of the books that he mentions in his notes is Transylvanian Superstitions by Emily Gerard, published in 1885. In it, Gerard writes, On the night of St. George's Day, so say the legends, all these treasures begin to burn, or to speak in mystic language, to bloom in the bosom of the earth. And the light they give forth, described as a bluish flame resembling the color of lighted spirits of wine, serves to guide favored mortals to their place of concealment. She goes on to write about how these flames would be followed by treasure hunters, giving a long list of other superstitious measures that must be followed to ensure success. And what Gerard says about that blue treasure flame appearing on St. George's Eve made it into the novel. It's a strange passage, given that we've been led to believe that the coach that meets Jonathan Harker at Borgo Pass is driven by an incognito Count Dracula. Harker says, Suddenly, away on our left, I saw a faint flickering blue flame. The driver saw it at the same moment. He at once checked the horses, and jumping to the ground, disappeared into the darkness. I did not know what to do, the less as the howling of the wolves grew closer, but while I wondered, the driver suddenly appeared again, and without a word took his seat and resumed our journey. I think I must have fallen asleep and kept dreaming of the incident, for it seemed to be repeated endlessly, and now, looking back, it is like a sort of awful nightmare. Now, you'd think Dracula was pretty much set for money, since the whole reason Harker's visiting is to facilitate him buying real estate in London. Maybe, what, it's just like a hobby of the Counts, like those guys on the beach with metal detectors? If you think about it, he doesn't really have a legitimate income flow. So maybe Stoker's trying to answer some practical questions here. Later in Chapter 4, Harker sneaks down into the castle's lower chamber and notices piles of gold coins, which were forged over various centuries, it says. Those could have been buried for years, I suppose. I guess even a 500-year-old vampire has to find a way to make ends meet. So, Stoker was big on details. As I was saying earlier, he has the date fixed for the visit to Dracula's castle as May 5th, the eve of May 6th, the date St. George's Day is celebrated in regions dominated by the Eastern Orthodox Church, like, for instance, Transylvania. But in Western Catholic regions, it's April 23rd. The reason being the Eastern Church historically stuck to the old Julian calendar, not our newfangled Gregorian system. So the two calendars are off by 12 days. Now, that historical calendrical shift back in 1582 had an impact on culture, on folklore, folk practice. The 12-day difference meant certain practices and beliefs which might have been fixed to one particular date would drift over a cluster of 12 days. 
It's how we got the expanded 12 days of Christmas, with the spread between December 25th and January 6th, between the new and what the, in England they call the old Christmas, the old being January 6th. I talk a good deal about the dark associations these 12 Christmas nights had in my Krampus book. Uh, these extra days were considered a sort of weird, lost, in-between time at the end of the year. And just like the St. George of Alpurgisnacht period, it was a time when the doors between worlds were believed to have been left open for all sorts of supernatural mischief. All of this gives us a bit of a clue on the Valpurgisnacht St. George kerfuffle. Stay with me. Now, you'll notice that smack dab in the middle between the Gregorian Catholic St. George, April 23rd, and the Julian Orthodox St. George, May 6th, we have May 1st, and it's Eve Valpurgisnacht. So, couldn't that be a reason the old folklore attached to both occasions seem so mm, similar? Maybe we just chalk it all off to round off error and the 12 days are one big holiday, a single holiday. The name Walpurgisnacht wouldn't be used in Romania anyway, of course. Nacht is German for night and the Walpurga part comes from a saint buried in Germany, so it's fairly localized to German-speaking lands. But perhaps an underlying older pagan holiday predated any saints' names that got attached. But the question remains, why wouldn't the film just use St. George's Eve, the date provided in Stoker's text? Why make it so complicated for me to go through all this? But if you think about Hollywood in the 1930s, it could make sense. The film industry was swimming with German emigres. Universal, the studio that made the film, was founded by the German Carl Lemley, who brought in plenty of other German talent. And Carl Lemley Jr. produced the film, and the cinematographer Carl Freund was from Bohemia, the German-speaking region of the Czech Republic. But the writer, the actual guy who might have made this odd substitution, I don't know his heritage. Garrett Fort's name doesn't sound particularly German, but it's safe to say he worked with Germans in the industry and possibly uncredited German co-writers on the script who just thought Walpurgisnacht sounded, I don't know, a bit scarier. Now, Garrett was sort of the go-to guy for horror scripts in the early 30s. He not only worked on Dracula, but also Boris Karloff's Frankenstein. Frankenstein! 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 With the success of all this, it's sort of natural that he was recruited for what was to be a follow-up to the success of Dracula. 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 That film was Dracula's Daughter, promoted, or at least originally intended, as a film based on the story Dracula's Guest, which, as it turns out, was not only written by Bram Stoker, but also mentions Walpurgisnacht as the day of a vampiric encounter. Though little or nothing of the actual text of Dracula's Guest makes it into the film, it's probably safe to assume that Garrett Fort would have read this story before working on the 1936 film. 
But did he read it before working on the 1931 film and get the idea about Valpurgisnacht from the story then? Possibly being the go-to horror script guy, he was actually interested personally enough in the horror genre that he might have read it on his own before he even started on Dracula. But again, we don't know. In any case, Stoker's story, published in a posthumous 1914 collection, was described by his widow as material originally intended for the novel Dracula, but edited out. In the story, a nameless narrator, probably, presumably, the same Jonathan Harker in the novel, visits Munich en route to Transylvania, and there in Germany has a weird encounter on Walpurgisnacht and describes that night as one when the devil was abroad, when the graves were opened and the dead came forth and walked, when all evil things of earth and air and water held revel. And so he gets a taste of all this when he's caught by a nocturnal snowstorm and finds shelter in what he realizes is an abandoned cemetery. He somehow falls or breaks through the door of a crypt which happens to have an iron stake hammered through the roof hmm. and sees an inscription reading, Countess Dolingen of Graz in Styria sought and found death, 1801. And then inscribed on the back of the tomb in graven great Russian letters, and I'm not sure why Russian, but it says, The dead travel fast because it's Valpurgisnacht it gets even more supernatural a lightning bolt hits the iron stake illuminating the tomb and in the flash he sees the apparition of a beautiful woman asleep on the slab he's thrown to the ground and as he opens his eyes sees a giant wolf sitting on his chest licking his throat before it disappears Later he hears of a wolf, yet not a wolf, being pursued in the forest by locals. I'm guessing Dracula? A wolf? Yeah. Too much? Well, Stoker did leave it out. But in this story, in this passage, he includes not one, but two shout-outs to literary forefathers of his vampire novel. The occupant of the sinister tomb is a Styrian countess. Styria, by the way, is a province in Austria. So she's a countess, and she's from Styria. So is the vampiric character in Carmilla, a novel written 26 years before Dracula by another Irish writer, Joseph Le Fanu. And the dead travel fast is a phrase that Stoker retained in the actual novel Dracula. It's whispered into Harker's ear by a fellow traveler as the Count's coach arrives. But here he is quoting a recurring line from a work influential in the development of Gothic literature, and one based on folk tales. It's an 1844 poem by German writer Gottfried August Berger called Lenora, or sometimes Eleanor in English translation. Nice Gothic story. Goes like this. Lenora has lost her husband in the Seven Years' War and curses heaven. As a result, a mysterious knight resembling her husband Wilhelm comes to her at midnight, taking her away on his horse, riding through the night. Come sunrise, it turns out their destination is not the marriage bed Lenora had expected, but a grave. 
The figure reveals itself to be death, and Wilhelm appears in the grave as a skeleton in shattered armor. The ground crumbles beneath Lenore's feet, and spirits rise up around her, taunting her for bringing on her fate by cursing heaven. Gothic, no? Even if it doesn't happen, to happen on Valkyrgis. The night of evil. And this night, madame, the doors into the virgin we pray. That tale seems like a fitting ending for this, our inaugural Valpurgisnacht episode of Bone and Sickle. Next time we'll continue on the topic of Valpurgisnacht and get into more details of its history with witchcraft and how it's celebrated in Europe. I'd like to thank Wilkinson for reading our quoted passages. Uh, wasn't so bad standing up at the mic, was it, Wilkinson? Oh, no, sir. It was only 20 minutes of standing. Should be no problem once I get my muscles conditioned. And you delivered your lines so well like that, standing up, rich tones. Thank you, sir. I hope everyone enjoyed this, our first episode of Bone and Sickle, and we'll continue listening to future shows. Shows are uploaded on Mondays every other week. Please visit the website, boneandsickle.com, all one word, where you can find show notes, images, and video of topics mentioned in this podcast. You can find the podcast on SoundCloud, YouTube, and on the Bone and Sickle website. You'll also find links on our website to our social media pages, which we're just setting up. And there's a Patreon link where you can donate to support this foolish undertaking. Patreon members have a choice of gifts and incentives, including exclusive access to extra bits of the podcast. I would love to get your comments on what you liked, uh, questions you have, suggestions, topic ideas, or any other messages, really. And please do like and comment when and wherever you can. The show is written and produced by me, Al Reidenauer, and Wilkinson is played by Rick Gallagher. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>